Welcome back to the Intelligent Conversations podcast. Today, I have the honor to learn from John Wynn Miller. John is an author, novelist, journalist, screenwriter, Pulitzer finalist, and publisher. He has many years of experience working at places such as the Associated Press, the Wall Street Journal, and many other publishing places. John's newest book, The Hunt for Peggy C., is a World War II maritime thriller. So, John... Thank you for coming on today. I am looking forward to it, and I haven't read your book yet, but I have it downloaded, like I said, and I'm going to get to it. But I'm kind of curious just to kind of start this out. What kind of drove you towards, you know, writing, producing, screenwriting, all these things in kind of the creative space? What kind of pushed you in that direction? It, it's kind of odd. I came from a family of lawyers, my father, my brother, my aunts, my uncles. I'm named for a judge. And I thought I was going to go to law school like everybody else. But I just fell in love with writing uh, at a young age and storytelling and poetry. Uh, so when I was in college, uh, I ended up, I walked into the student newspaper and never walked out. Uh, that I, I wanted to write the great American novel. Uh, unfortunately, at the time, I knew nothing about writing and I had no experiences to write about. <laughs> so I figured, well, I'll learn in journalism and maybe I'll travel some and have something to write about. So uh, I spent 30 years as a journalist, as an investigative reporter, as a foreign correspondent based in Italy, um, traveled all over the world, then I became an editor, and then I was a publisher, and then when the newspaper industry went into the toilet back in the early 2000s, I decided I'm going to write a screenplay because I'm not smart enough to write a novel. That's too hard. So uh, I took some online courses and read books and uh, joined uh, writing groups. And so I, the weird thing is, is that they tell you in, when you're going to write screenplays or novels, write what you know. Well, I knew nothing about what I'm writing about. And here's why. It, uh, years ago, my daughter Allison uh, and my wife Margo and I were watching a really horrible action-adventure movie on TV. I don't even remember which one it was. And I kept saying, I know I can write a better screenplay than that. I just know it. So that night... True story, I had a dream. And when I woke up, I knew the first scene of the screenplay, I knew the last scene, and I knew the name of the ship, the Peggy C. I knew nothing else about anything. Uh, so I had to spend years just researching U-boats uh, and tramp steamers and Jewish culture and the Holocaust and uh, World War II nautical terms. So. I wrote the screenplay and actually got some interest in Hollywood. Uh, my brother is a film editor out there, and my daughter Allison is now a TV star, uh, does movies too, but um, it didn't sell. So when COVID hit, I decided I'm finally going to write that novel. So I took some courses. I read a million books. I started writing uh Again, only knowing the beginning and the end, 
and roughly who the characters were. And after about seven months, I finished the novel. I couldn't believe it. Um, I, I had to spend several months rewriting it, but uh, because I had tried writing like other writers, I wanted to be a, you know, a, a literary, <laughs> and it just didn't work. It, it was terrible. So I went back and wrote as a journalist. I'm reporting it, but with all five senses. Uh, you know, with I want you to feel the cold and smell the stink of the inside of a of a U boat and and experience the fear of what uh, and the re repression that the Jews went through in Nazi occupied Holland. Um, so that that's how I became a writer of novels as opposed to journalism. I also produced a few movies in between, and so uh, I, I'm. And I've been retired twice. I never really retired. I just left journalism and transitioned to uh, something else. You're just continuing to do what you want to do and what you yep. love to do. Yep. That's so cool. <laughs> I I, th I love that you, how you talked about how you transitioned. You weren't afraid to like, oh, let's try something new. And oftentimes when we try that first thing, right, when it's new, we, we know nothing. But we just got to try so I am curious, though, this is a little side note. What was the favorite place? It seems like you've traveled a lot. And did you travel a lot to uh, research this book? And also, what's your favorite place you've been to? Well, the, the first answer is no, I didn't travel because it was during COVID. Uh, and even when I was writing the screenplay years before, I really didn't go to a lot of the places that I'm writing about. Uh, like I said, I've never been on a U-boat. There is one in Chicago in a museum that I couldn't go to because it was in during COVID. Uh, I've never been on a cargo ship. Um, until recently, I hadn't been to most of the places I wrote about. And I knew nothing about U-boats uh, or ships or the Navy. Or Although I had read a ton of World War II history, it turned out I didn't know as much as I thought I did, so I had to do a lot more research. So uh, during my career, I did travel a lot. I was uh, here in Lexington, Kentucky. I was uh, based uh, editor in State College, Pennsylvania, editor in Tallahassee, Florida, publisher in uh, Olympia, Washington, and publisher in Concord, New Hampshire, I uh, lived in Rome, Italy for about five years where I worked for the AP and the Wall Street Journal, uh, Europe edition, which doesn't exist anymore. And from there, I also uh, traveled a lot, uh, traveled with Pope John Paul II to a lot of places, uh, traveled throughout the Middle East with uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, uh, terrorist leaders in Lebanon, um, it was in Bulgaria, India, Ethiopia. I was in or near three wars. Uh, I was only in one shooting war that I saw uh, shooting. That was in Lebanon during the 1980s. Um, so that was my really my only experience with combat. And uh, although I reported on a lot of wars from either from Rome or near where it was happening. So that gave me an appreciation of different cultures and the way different people think. Uh, as a reporter, I had to learn to 
uh, and this was in the days before cell phones. Uh, and CNN was just starting. I mean, uh, that's crazy to think. Yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, they were. I traveled with a bunch of the CNN reporters and camera people, most of whom are now retired. But so, in order to put my readers and the AP and the Wall Street Journal into the scene. I had to learn how to use all five senses. I had to tell them what it looked like. What clothes were they wearing? Were they sweating? Were they grunting? What language did they speak? Um, what, what kind of food did they have to eat? What was the temperature? Um, and so that helped inform my writing as a novelist because I was used to observing that. And uh, I was a political reporter for a while, and so I was used to paying a, t a lot of attention to body language, particularly of politicians, because they have sort of an alternative uh, reality frequently. And uh, <laughs> you have to be used to double-checking them. And so the travels were important. Uh, I enjoyed them. Uh, I, I loved Rome. Rome was, back in the 80s, it was, a, it was chaotic. It was crazy. Uh, there were terrorism uh, but it was cheap for an American. Uh, they people liked Americans then. <laughs> so, although, <laughs> although uh, frequently they didn't think I was an American because I was too short, so they would address me in French first. <laughs> and so, oh, because <laughs> you know, all Americans are big and tall and. Uh, did, did you learn French over time then? Just enough interaction. No, <laughs> oh. I, 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 I learned Italian which I spoke with a very bad Southern accent, which fortunately most Italians found charming. And uh, my Italian friends would take me out to dinner with their Italian friends who didn't speak English because they would want to hear me speak uh, this very funny Italian. Uh, and at the time, American TV was very popular on Italian TV. And the most popular show was Dallas. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's set mm -hmm. in Texas. And uh, they speak with a Southern accent, a Texan accent, not Kentucky. And when they would dub it, they would dub it with kind of a Southern accent in Italian. So they <laughs> thought I was from Dallas. <laughs> so so wow. it was a lot of fun. So if, if Italy was probably my favorite place to live, it's where my daughter was born. Oh, that's cool. That's so cool, man. I. That, that's something I, I enjoy too is traveling just seeing seeing the world it's a big world out there too yeah yeah <laughs> I've been to every continent except Antarctica so I'm I, I'm one of these days I might make it there I think they do like uh I know there's a youtuber like if you go down to South Africa they do uh like expeditions there yeah there are cruises I've actually looked at them there are a number of uh uh, National Geographic does one, and then there's some other more commercial ships that do it. It's just, I can't imagine 15 days of looking at snow and penguins. <laughs> if, I, you know, if I could get there quickly and, and just, you know, put plant my flag on Antarctica and check that box that I've been everywhere, I would do it. But uh, I, I may do it someday. That's so cool. That you, man, not not too many people can say they've they've gone yeah. to every continent. So I mean, you'd definitely be in that list if you. Yeah, up. I think you should. I think that'd be so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna kind of 
shift back to, you know, your book and what you're talking about, how you used all your senses to kind of write this. And you said that you weren't, you never got a chance to actually be in a U-boat. How do you actually then write about being in a U-boat without actually being in one? <laughs> Good question. Uh, well, first, let me tell you what it's about. It's uh, it's about an American smuggler in the days before America enters the World War II who struggles to smuggle a Jewish family out of Nazi-occupied Amsterdam, which infuriates his crew of uh, misfits, mutinous misfits, and sparks a hair-raising chase by brutal U-boat captain bent on revenge. So during this 3,000-mile chase, uh, I have to take you inside a U-boat. And I didn't watch movies uh, because I found most of them were contain anachronisms or the wrong language uh, or just simply weren't realistic, with possible exception of Das Boot, which uh, I had watched years ago, but I deliberately didn't watch it again before I uh, started writing because I didn't want to steal any scenes and I didn't want to get something wrong. So I read every U-boat captain's autobiography I could get my hands on, uh, and I read a bunch of histories about U-boats, and I would pick and choose details uh, about uh, U-boats. You know, what? where did they store the food? Well, they would hang the food uh, everywhere they could, and they was hanging from the ceiling. It was underneath the beds. Uh, it was in, it filled up one of the two toilets, heads that they had. So they only had one head for 45 men. And if they were under water for very long uh, and deep enough, you couldn't even use the other uh, toilet because the water pressure was too great. So they had to use buckets that were in the engine room. Uh, they have two engines, diesel and electric. Um, and when they're under water, they have to use the electric. So I had to learn what it felt like. It was bitterly cold when they were underwater because they frequently couldn't use their heaters because they were trying to run silent and they didn't want to get caught by the, the allies. Uh, and they would walk on socks or pillows uh, and they would whisper. So I would read the books to find out those little details that I could put in to build a really accurate picture um, of what life was like when they weren't in battle, and then also what it was like when they were in battle, based on real uh, accounts from real U-boat uh, sailors. Um, and also I would use um, people from the outside uh, writing about U-boats uh, or about tramp steamers uh, who you know, had written histories about it based on other people's books. And then I would use their books to go find the originals. Uh, so uh, there are also a number of documentaries that I watched, and there were actually some Nazi propaganda films that I was able to watch that would let, let me watch real U-boat captains. Um, and there are a couple of websites that were amazing. One is called uboat.net. And if you go to that, you can 
read about every, practically every U-boat every day of the war, what ships they sank, who their commanders were. Uh, and then there's another site where I could go and read the diaries, uh, the war diaries of all the U-boat captains. Every day they would have to write down what the weather was, what the moon phase was, where they were, what ships they shot. Um, so I was able to build a lot of details to the point where I can tell accurately in 1941 what the phase of the moon was for each day of my chase, uh, because the moon is really important to U-boats about how they attack and where they attack and from what direction. So, I mean, I was really obsessed with details. So even if you're not a big fiction reader, you'll find a lot of history of World War II uh, and uh, the people in World War II that it, you don't, generally don't read about. I'm curious. You said that you got as far as, like, the moon. First of all, how does that have to do with U-boats? I, I'm a little... <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'm confused by that. But then yeah. also, how did you figure that out <laughs> for that time? I, I, with most of these things, I just stumbled across it. But in the books, they talk about U-boats... Uh, uh, they, the head of the U-boat uh, in Germany, Admiral Dunitz, uh, wrote that uh, U-boats were not really submarines. They were submersibles because they could only go underwater for so long. And when they were underwater, they couldn't go very fast. Uh, they could maybe travel at seven knots when the average rusty tramp steamer could do 10 knots. So they couldn't keep up with the target. So they liked to come to the surface where they could do 17 knots with using the diesel engines, catch any ship they could use. They have a cannon on the front in addition to the torpedoes that they could use. So they would want to come up. Now, when they came up, they were very vulnerable. So they would typically try to come up at night. And they would try to come up in a way where the moon was behind the target so they could see the target in the light of the moon and and weave in and out very fast uh, the convoys and attack ships before any of the escorts could catch up with them. And so it was very important for the U-boats uh, to know what the phase of the moon was. Uh, they really also liked when there was a new moon, which means no moon, it's dark. And so they can they can sneak up onto a convoy. Remember, there was no real radar uh, back mm -hmm. then. It was largely visual and audio. They could hear, uh, listen for sounds. So that's why the moon was so important. And it was also important for um, planes. Planes couldn't attack very effectively if there was no moon. Um, and so it was critical that they knew what the moon was going to be like. Um, so, for instance, D-Day, the reason we invaded when we did was it was going to be a full moon and the tidal waves were going to be the right direction so they could actually see what they were doing and the planes could see to support them. So that's why I obsessed about it, uh, because it's so critical. And I didn't want a sailor to read the book and say, that's not what they would do. That's crazy. So that's such a small... I like detail that you don't even think about, but probably pre plays like a huge role yeah, <laughs> as yeah. well. 
especially at that time period. That's why I would obsess on what kind of weapons did they use? I didn't just say a submachine gun. It was an MP40 or it wasn't a Luger. It was a Walter PPK or, uh, you know, the, the, the cannon in the uh, front on the front of the U-boat uh, shot a, a, a 33 millimeter uh, an 8.8 centimeter cannon that could shoot a, a, around seven miles. Uh, so I could be really authentic. Uh, and I would tell you the names of the planes that would attack you boats, uh, what types they were, the walrus or the Sunderland uh, tank or U-boat hunter. Because I want you to feel like you're really there and that you can visualize it and that it's all authentic. I'm not just I making think, it up. <laughs> I think that's so important, though, that, I mean, that's what really makes a great novel to begin with is uh, the reader has to feel like they are there. Right. So I'm curious on this end, you said that you saw like kind of the idea of how this started is you saw an action movie and you're like, hey, I can write a better screenplay than this. And then you knew how it was going to begin and how it's going to end. How do you feel in the middle? <laughs> because there's a lot of stuff that uh, kind of builds up to that ending. How, very, how do you very that? painfully. Uh, in one of the courses I took, uh, a guy named Sid Fields, who's considered the, the godfather of screenwriting, he very specifically outlines how you write an effective screenplay. And there are, if you go to a movie, and it drives me crazy now because I know exactly what's happening structurally in the movie. Okay, it's 10 minutes in, here comes the inciting incident. Okay, it's uh, 30 minutes in, here comes uh, the the second act and where we have all these things happen. And then you know, 90 minutes in, here's the third act. I can tell because here's the final struggle. Uh, and he talked about, first, you need to understand the characters. So who are your characters? What are their arcs? Meaning, how do they grow and change from beginning to end? Um, and you want your hero to be deeply flawed, fight doing the right thing, do the right thing, and by the end, be kind of converted to the the good side from the, as opposed okay. to the bad side. Your bad guy never it never changes. Mm -hmm. He just gets worse and worse. And to write it, once you kind of have an idea of who the characters are, you write a bio of them. So you can refer back to, you know, what's their hair color or what kind of accent do they have? How tall are they? Are they left-handed or right-handed? So you're consistent. And then he said, just think of scenes, cool stuff you want to do and get three by five cards and just write one or two lines on each card of here's the scene, here's what's going to happen and put them up on a cork board and just kind of organize them so you've got your constant building of the tension. Uh, things get rougher and rougher for the the uh, the hero. It's sort of like if you ever watch a Bourne movie, uh, mm. which I just love those movies because it starts out and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and by the <laughs> end, there's no way he's going to survive. And you're just, you're at the edge of your seat pulling for him. So then you got to actually write that. <laughs> uh, and so I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And I got 
opinions and reviews, rewrote it to try to build the tension to believe to have believable characters um, that you care about, and that that's really important. And then to come up with the ending that a famous screenwriter William Gold Goldman. I get his name wrong every time, said that you want to give the audience at the end what they ex want, but not the way they expect it. So it's got to be a surprise and yet satisfying. It doesn't actually have to be happy, but it has to be emotional. So um, that's what everything was building up to. You really want the characters to survive. You really don't like the bad guy, but you kind of feel a little sorry for him because you understand sort of why he's driven, uh, and you really feel sorry for his uh, sailors in the U-boat who he drags into this horrible uh, chase. And so, that, that you know, and you just write and rewrite. The other trick is you got to learn how to write in an active voice. So uh, I, after I finish, I go through and I look for any passive voice. And I try to beef up my verbs to make up. He didn't just walk. You know, he strolled, he marched, he, he dashed, uh, he hurried along. Um, and it, that really changes the flavor of what you're reading because it, it gets you energized rather than, you know, he just walked or he thought he did. Um, all of these things just take time and practice and getting good critiques from people. So, I mean, I like that last part, especially where you said that you, you shared it with others and got their opinion on it. I think sometimes, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. We just are like, oh, it's going to work, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is a great idea and it's just going to work. But then when you actually get the opinion of others, you're like, well, did you think about this? And you're like, well, no, no. I didn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> dope slap. <laughs> yeah, no, and we all we all experience those uh, moments. So, kind of a walk me through this. I like now. I'm excited to read this. But what? So the story is about a sailor, and he's going to help. Uh, a Jewish family out yeah, of Jewish escape. family escape, now, and then he's being chased by a German U-boat. Right. What well, What was the action movie that kind of helped I, you? You know, I have no idea what it was. I just knew I didn't like it. And part of these problem with action movies is they have chase scenes that are kind of useless. And so I think I was thinking, how about a chase scene that is so painfully slow? that the tension just builds up and builds up. Uh, you know, it's not like, you know, Bullet or The French Connection or uh, Vin Diesel, you know, Fast and <laughs> Fast, Fast and Furious, where all these special effects. Yeah. And uh, But even Bourne, when they have a chase scene, you've, it's, it's a well-done chase scene. It's, it has a purpose. Uh, so uh, I, I wanted to build up tension in the way I construct the story um, and uh, be as realistic as possible um, and because I want you to feel like, oh my God, this is impossible. How do they get out of this? 
And the truth is, is I had no idea how they were going to get out of it. I would, uh, my style was a lot of people like John Grisham writes about, he, when he has an idea, he writes a, an outline. He'll take three or four months just to do an outline and then three or four months to write the first draft. I don't outline. Uh, I work my characters into a corner and then I spend days trying to figure out, now how do I get them out of here logically and uh, realistically, um, which it, you know slows me down a little bit, but it adds to the tension. You know, If it's not obvious to me when I'm going into a scene how they escape, then it's not going to be obvious to the reader, I would hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's got to make sense, right? They yeah. got to feel like they... <clears throat> I mean, I especially... Correct me if I'm wrong. Would this first uh, be classified as historical fiction, this book? Yes. Okay. So, especially in those books, I think the reason why, I mean, I like them and other people as well is because uh, you can kind of feel like there's a sense of real, like things like that actually happened. Yeah. So, you need to feel like you're actually there. I don't know. I'm like kind of hitting that on the dot yeah. there. No. In fact, I was very careful that... Uh, particularly with the U-boat and with the, the, the bad guy. is a captain named Victor Brower, a self-made man from Hamburg who worked his way up through the merchant marine to become a lawyer. He was an ardent Nazi, uh, finally got on a U-boat as a, a second officer and didn't do very well. So now he's got a lot to prove. Um, so I based him on three real U-boat captains who I'd either read about or read their biographies or autobiographies. And every action he takes, with a couple of exceptions, uh, were based on real events that happened during the war. And I wanted to, particularly when he does bad things, I wanted to make sure that it was it was realistic that it actually happened. There's a scene where he's so frustrated at the chase that he can't catch uh, the Peggy C and its captain Jake Rogers uh, that he orders his U-boat to attack a neutral three island uh, not three island uh, three mass uh, schooner motorized schooner from Sweden and they just slaughter the the ship and and slaughter the people on it they don't offer any assistance well that's actually based on a true story so uh i i, I didn't want somebody to be able to come back and say, oh the nazis never did that well yes they did <laughs> so again there's a couple of scenes where i do take it over the top that's that's what fiction is but uh for the most part i'm taking real stuff and from diaries uh, or from biographies and converting them into fiction. So, you know, one, one critique of it was that not only is it entertaining, but you learn something uh, that you didn't know. I Man, I, I don't want you to like spoil anything, but I, I do want to use this as the intelligent question of the day. And that's, you mentioned you can learn something from this. And I, I think that's an important part just of life in general. So what would you say, what are some of the things that when people read your book uh, that they'll learn? There's uh, some moral ambiguity here, uh, and it, it really explores that because, you know, what is honor? What is duty? If you're a Nazi, 
Do you carry out orders even though you know they're bad? If you're uh, like my hero, a fugitive from justice uh, and who only wants to make them bucks as a smuggler, do you take a big chance and do something right for once as opposed to something profitable? And uh, what is it that uh, drives people in wars? Uh, Napoleon used to say that he, and I use this line, Napoleon would say, uh, it's amazing what you can get men to do for little pieces of colored ribbon. And, uh, and so my hero thinks all, all soldiers and sailors are suckers because they'll do anything for little pieces of ribbon. And they, uh, they, they think they're doing the honorable thing. Uh, and he actually has a debate with one of the Nazis about this. And by the end, he makes the decision to do the right thing. And uh, it, 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 and the Nazis think they're doing the right thing, but uh, you can see that they're not. So it's the moral ambiguity of war, of extremism, of nationalism. Uh, what is the right thing to do? And do you have the courage to do it? That's, I mean... That's the intelligent answer of the day, and I, I good. <laughs> I, if I could add anything to that, though, I would say that on the topic of like that war, it does it shows your true colors, and oh my goodness, yeah, I'd say it it uh, it not only uh, it doesn't you know struggling doesn't just build character, it exposes character. So that's what happens, uh, you know, under stress and in a war. It it shows what your character really is. There you go. I you capped that off perfectly. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, thank you, thank you for coming on today. But if people want to, like, now they're probably hooked. They're like, man, we got to read this. What what's the best way they can find that? If they want to reach out to you, talk to you, what's the best way they can do that? They, the Hunt for the Peggy C, it's available wherever you buy books. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible, Barnes Noble, Kobo. Um, and uh, you can find me on my website, uh, which is just my name, www.johnwinmiller.com, J-O-H-N-W-I-N-N-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Um and uh, you can, uh, on my website, you can read more about me, about my background. You can read the first three chapters of the book. Uh, you can email me from, you know, send me messages from there if you have questions. Uh, or you can follow me there and follow when the sequel comes out, which is scheduled for next, uh, next no, not this November, but November 2024. It's finished. It's sold. Uh, my publisher has it, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through the third volume. So there's a lot of fun stuff. Oh, there's this is about – there's a lot of good stuff coming. Yeah. I'm excited for you. Well, John, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Thanks, Josh. It was a lot of fun. All right, everyone. As you can tell, that is John Wynn Miller. He's a very intelligent person, has great things to share. I challenge you guys, if anything spoke to you, or if this book interests you, I know I will, to go and give it a read, listen, whatever it may be. 
Stay tuned till next week. We have a great guest lined up for you guys. See you guys next week, and let's get after it. Hey everyone, if you liked this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button. We release a new episode every Wednesday for you guys to listen to. Thank you guys so much for the support that you give. We could not have done this without you guys. If you would like to be a potential guest on the show, check out intelligentconvos.com and fill out the form there. Thank you guys again, and let's get after it.